This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter. Visit enterpriseinspace.org. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. I think you did a little too much LDS. LDS? Mm. Come on, why don't you let me give you a lift? I have a notorious weakness for hard luck cases. That's why I work with whales. We don't want to be in any trouble. You've already been that. Come on. Well, thank you very much. Don't mention it. And don't try anything either. I got a tire iron right where I can get at it. So, <clears throat> you were at uh, Berkeley? I was not. Memory problems, too. Oh. What about you? Where are you from? Iowa. Oh, landlubber. Come on, what the hell were you guys really trying to do back there? It wasn't some kind of macho thing, was it? Because if that's all, I'll be real disappointed. I really hate that macho stuff. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> Go ahead. What's going to happen when you release the whales? Uh... They're going to have to take their chances. What does that mean exactly, take their chances? It means that they will be at risk from whale hunters the same as the rest of the humpbacks. What did you mean when you said all that stuff back at the Institute about extinction? I meant that... He meant what you said on the tour. That if things keep going the way they are, the humpbacks will disappear forever. Oh, that's not what he said, farm boy. Admiral, if we were to assume those whales are ours to do with as we pleased, we would be as guilty as those who caused, past tense, their extinction. I have a photographic memory. I see words. Are you sure it isn't time for a colorful metaphor? <sighs> You're not one of those guys from the military, are you, trying to teach whales to retrieve torpedoes or some dipshit stuff like that? No, ma'am, no dipshit. Well, good. That's one thing I would have let you off right here. Gracie is pregnant. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Traffic FM's dedicated podcast that covers the original series. I'm Ken Tripp, hosting this week as the Commodore is on some needed shore leave. We have yet another fantastic show for all our red shirts and blue beamers out there in Trek.FM land. So welcome, everyone. And we have with us, as always, the co-host and the co-star, the Trek expert aboard and ready for warp speed. Hello, Jeff Harlan. How are you, sir? I am doing great. Uh, Had a pretty good weekend. Uh, Spent uh, some time uh, with uh, Mrs. Ataz over on the Queen Mary out in Long Beach. Uh, We were uh, chaperoning the prom for the high school that I work at. Oh, that must have been a blast. Now, 
just out of curiosity, do the do the kids go home at night, or do they stay on the ship as well? Uh, they went home. Uh, the uh, the kids that I work with, uh, the prom ended at eleven, and we saw them all off. Uh, uh, waited for their parents to pick them up, and then we went back inside of the uh, inside of the ship for the adult prom. <laughs> Excellent. Sounds like fun. That lasted until about be- one a.m. <laughs> Aren't you getting kind of old for that stuff, there, Eitan? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> that's good and well i'm glad you and megan had a nice weekend that 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 sounds something that that sounds real special and it's something that i've always wanted to go aboard the queen mary yeah. and uh and just experience uh it looks like an absolutely beautiful ship yeah it and is what, uh, we we got a room on board and we uh we st- spent the night and took uh we got some tours and uh got to see the ship this morning oh yeah okay well she's no enterprise but she looks pretty sure mm-hmm. okay all right, so what are we doing? Well, we're walking through all the Kirk and crew movies through Star Trek Into Darkness. That's our goal. And already we've covered TMP and The Wrath of Khan during a, a hit show where we pitched them against each other. And last week, our crew here covered The Search for Spock. And this week, we get on to The Voyage Home. So, Jeff, I know that um, you're, you're a pretty big fan of all things movie-wise, just like I am. And what I'm going to run through real quickly uh, is is the synopsis of the film. But before we get we get into that too far, uh, when you hear Star Trek Four, is this one of the movies that that you come back and and watch fairly often, or is this one of them that it's hey, it's a good movie, but I never think to watch it? Um, it's it's a good movie, and it's a really good one to watch with someone who's not like a really big Star Trek fan. But it's not one that I go for um, just by myself. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, but it's unless I'm watching like two, three, four in sequence, I don't really mm-hmm. tend to watch it uh, just by itself. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm similar to that, and I think there's a there's a there's a common theme among Star Trek fans. So this will be interesting uh, thing to touch on as we go. So let me just give a brief synopsis of the movie, and then we'll get into your initial thoughts of it. So the movie starts off pretty much with the. Um, with the crew uh, stranded on Vulcan, uh, refitting their Klingon bird of prey to to go back home, back to Earth, to stand trial for stealing the Enterprise, uh, amongst other things. But as this is happening, a giant probe, a humongous pipe-looking probe, is heading towards Earth, and it's disabling starships on its way. It gets into Earth orbit. Uh, the power is knocked out across the planet, across the giant space station, and it starts wreaking havoc with the weather systems. Back on Vulcan, Kirk and the crew get ready to depart. Kirk has, uh, excuse me, Spock has some conversations with his mother. Kirk gets some more amplifying information on how his son was killed by the Klingons. And they leave heading back to Earth, ready for trial. Meanwhile, back on Earth, as things are getting worse and worse, they realize that the, the weather patterns are starting to to block out the sun and that the Earth's existence is now in jeopardy. So they send out a radio message to all ships to avoid the planet Earth at all costs. And of course, this is picked up by the, the bird of prey with Kirk and crew heading home. And they do some analysis on the signals that are coming from the probe, that this very disruptive signal. And they determine that the, the probe is targeting Earth's oceans. As they play with the signal and manipulate the signal, they realize that it is trying to reach out to and speak with and communicate with humpback whales. Obviously, in the 23rd century, humpback whales are 
no longer around. So they they the team aboard the the Bird of Prey radios back to Earth saying we are going to go back in time and we are going to bring back some humpback whales from the 20th century and hopefully get this thing to communicate with it. The ship does a slingshot around the sun and they wind up in Earth in the in the mid 1980s, which is very topical since this movie was made in 1986, and they wind up in San Francisco. While in San Francisco, they meet up with a a cetacean scientist named Dr. Jillian Taylor, who uh, works at the Cetacean Institute in Sausalito, uh, California, who just happens to have two humpback whales in captivity. Um, they work with uh, with the rest of the team to build a tank, uh, in the in the bird of prey that they can fill with water and beam the whales into. One of the problems they had, though, when they landed on Earth is that they, after the slingshot around the sun, they, they ran out of power, and they need to refuse the dilithium crystals, so they have a team that goes to the USS Enterprise, the aircraft carrier, uh, that is uh, Chekhov in Uhura, to, um, to take its high-energy photons and revitalize the dilithium, uh, the, the dilithium crystals. Uh, during that uh, attempt, Chekhov gets injured, uh, chased by Marines, and he's in the hospital. Kirk and crew beam into the hospital to rescue Chekhov. Uh, while this is happening, Mr. Scott is working on uh, securing some transparent aluminum. Mr. Sulu is transporting the plexiglass that's needed for the tanks uh, through with his, uh, via a Huey helicopter. And the whole crew assembles back on the on the on the bird of prey, along with Doctor Taylor, who, uh, as as Kirk is being beamed aboard, hu- hugs him, and then they go zooming off um, to uh, beam aboard the whales, which were since released and being chased by chased by whale hunters. They they get in front of the harpoon. The ship lands right in front of the harpoon before it could strike the whales. They beam the whales back to the ship. They manage to slingshot back around the sun. They crash land into San Francisco Harbor. The whales are released from their tanks, or Captain Kirk gallantly releases them from the tanks. They then begin to communicate with the probe. Uh, what is said to the probe and what is said to the whales is kept from the audience. And eventually, after some, I don't know, maybe three or four minutes of communications, the probe seems satisfied. It stops wreaking havoc with the earth, starts to sail on. The clouds open up, the sun comes out, uh, the crew celebrates, uh, and then at that point they are brought back to Starfleet headquarters where they must stand trial. Uh, Spock, Kirk, the whole team are in their dress uniform standing before the president of the United Federation of Planets where they are told in no uncertain terms that all the charges have been dropped against the crew and all the focus is on Admiral Kirk who is being demoted back to captain uh, to be given his own ship again. And the crew and the captain disembark. They take a shuttle up to the space dock. They go circling over the Excelsior. It looks like they're going to get the Excelsior. And there's a brand new Enterprise. NCC-1701-A awaits them. They board. They take her out of space dock and warp into their next adventure. How was that, Jeff? Did I capture most of it? Yeah, that sounded good. All right, so there we are. So, Jeff, uh, do you remember when you first saw this movie and your initial thoughts of it? Um, I th- 
think I missed it when it was in the theaters, uh, just because we didn't have a whole lot of movie to, money to go out to the movies at that time. Um, but uh, I do remember seeing it when it came out on video. And now, were you in Germany? I was in Germany out, at 96? that point when it when it yeah, came out 96. in video. Um, I was living, I think, in Texas when it came out in the theaters. Okay, and and again, you know, just kind of give me what what. What were your feelings of this movie? It's a very, very different vibe with this one. Yeah, this one was a lot different than all the other Star Trek movies, I mean, before and after. And it's a lot more fun. It's a, it's a lot more comedic. Um, you know, it, it's one that, you know, you can pop in and just have a good laugh with the characters. You know, it's more in line with some of the episodes like, uh, a, you know, Piece of the Action or... Uh, you know, Trouble with Tribbles, where you got a lot of comedy going on. Yeah, and you had mentioned before that, um, and, and, I, and, the, and I asked that question earlier for a very specific reason. If it was something that, that you like to go and watch and put in from time to time, and you mentioned that you like to watch it with other people. So we know that this movie had the um, the best domestic haul of any of the original series movies. It, it, it reached across a, a greater greater audience. It is known as the one with the whales. Uh, but I, like you, am similar. I, I don't necessarily go and watch it. Uh, if there's other people that are interested uh, in a movie or just wanting to watch a movie and I'm feeling like a Star Trek movie, that is the perfect one to put in because everybody just in, enjoys it. It has mass appeal, which is something that, that Star Trek kind of struggled with. So I, I'm, I'm on the same page as you. And as, as, as you were saying earlier, I guess um, you kind of feel similarly that this is something that you'd put on with other people that weren't necessarily Star Trek fans or that you're trying to bring into Star Trek, perhaps? Yeah, it's just something that uh, even if they don't like Star Trek, they can appreciate the fact that it's set in the present day. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, you, they can get some amusement of the fish out of water of these characters trying to interact with modern day Earth and just not fitting in while they're trying to fit in and they're trying a little mm-hmm. bit too hard and they're coming up with uh, inventive uses of uh, of cursing that aren't quite right and <laughs> uh, you know everything about this this movie it's just really perfect for watching with someone uh, just for no other reason than just to watch their reactions to these scenes and see how they like it and, you know, maybe they can appreciate something that I hadn't noticed before, or maybe they like something that I didn't really like, and I can get a, a better appreciation for something that, you know, I, you know, I can think about something in a different light that I hadn't thought of before. Sure, sure. Well, I, I remember a couple things. Uh, I did see this in the theaters. Uh, I guess I'm a little bit older than you, and um, I, had, I had seen all of the movies in the theaters, and and this one was a a real nice surprise. I have to be honest. Now you you really enjoy time travel, obviously, with a name like Ataz, and I've always been the guy that's like, yeah, I don't know if I like it. I, when I first heard about it and traveling back, I said, oh, it's going to be a little gimmicky. I was still excited to see it. It was the 20th anniversary. And there was a lot of stuff going on. So this is still before we had the next generation. It was it was it was a couple, a year before I guess the mm-hmm. next generation came out. But we knew it had been announced. The um, 
we, we uh, had heard through reading Starlog and other things that Leonard Nimoy was, was part of this and that Nicholas Meyer was back after his hiatus in Star Trek Three, doing some of the writing. Nimoy was directing again, so that was, that was, that was pretty cool. There was a, a pretty cool bit that was done at a Star Trek convention I was at for the 20th, and it had a, um, a big to-do uh, with uh, Leonard Nimoy and William Shatner on an airplane talking about, hey, we've got this great idea for the 20th anniversary. We'll, we'll, we'll make another movie and we'll call it Star Trek Four. And they were just going back and forth, having a good time, and it had everybody excited for it. But I do remember going to see it in the movie theater and being very pleasantly surprised at, at how much fun it was, how how well done it was. It had some it had some great lines because, you know, they are considered such um such heroes and and they are always, you know, saving saving the world, saving the universe, saving the galaxy, you name it. And here they were just completely out of their element, uh trying to figure things out. Still in in you know, Kirk trying to be cool. And this was the movie or the episode where he doesn't get the girl. So there was a lot of humility in this movie, I thought. Mm-hmm. They were able to make fun of themselves. And and they did a great job with it. And each and each member of the cast, uh, I thought, had some some really special moments. So and speaking of those, um so I'm I'm gonna jump ahead to to a point, then I'm gonna go back to another one on the writing cast. So most of the cast got a special mo- moment in the movie. You wanna talk to some of those, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, we got uh, everybody split up into teams, and each team went off to do something else. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, some some of the most famous bits with uh, Chekhov and Uhura trying to find the nuclear vessels. Yeah, oh, and perfect. absolutely the worst person to send on a mission to find a nuclear, uh, U.S. Navy nuclear uh, vessel at... Uh, during the Cold War is the Russian crew member, which was, right. you know, obviously half of the joke right there. Um, and that also just further goes into just how out of their element all these uh, these characters were, because they had no clue that this was not really the appropriate choice. Um, and, uh, you know, you've got uh, the scene of... The, of uh, Uhura and Chekhov trying to find uh, the uh, uh, Alameda, and they can't find Alameda. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing that I've I've heard was that that dialogue was recorded, uh, you know, just with random passersby, and those were like actual responses that they got from people who then, as soon as they walked away, were pulled aside and said, "Okay, we just filmed you for the Star Trek movie." Yes, that's right. The uh, the woman who responded and said Alameda yeah. and was giving them directions, they had to chase down and get a contract signed quickly. Yeah, <laughs> and the um, the police officer in that scene who was mm-hmm. watching the whole thing, he was just set there as part of the detail. Right, because they had mm-hmm. the streets blocked and closed, and you just watch him watching them like this is ridiculous. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. What did you think? You know what was nice was the uh, the McCoy Scotty dynamic. Was, oh, they yeah. played off. Yeah, that was yeah, good. They played too. off each other really, really well. It was nice to pull McCoy away from from the uh, the dynamic with with uh, with Spock and and Kirk. And watch them just kind of have fun with each other. And I thought Scotty with the Mac computer and the and the mouse was perfect. <laughs> yeah, um, 
just his complete discomfort with this ancient technology and you know, you know trying to figure out how to use a, uh, a computer that doesn't have a voice interface they give him the mouse he doesn't know what it is they give him a keyboard and he's like how quaint right <laughs> and then he does things with the keyboard that are completely impossible to do with a keyboard <laughs> yeah yeah he was moving at a pretty <laughs> at a pretty quick pace and uh, i just like how he he became the I guess the leader or the expert and uh and, and McCoy was kind of the assistant, right? You know, and yeah. don't lose yourself into the part. That was uh, that was pretty good. Uh yeah, that that was neat. And and even Sulu had kind of a, a brief moment where he was talking mm-hmm. about the, the Huey helicopter with with a pilot I guess at the same factory where they were looking at getting the plexiglass for the for the tanks. And um there there's a story that goes along with that too, Jeff. I, I think you're familiar with there was there was, they they did attempt to make a more special scene for George Takai. Did, did you mm-hmm. want to discuss that a little bit? Uh, sure, yeah. There was, uh, they originally they were trying to have a scene where he, Sulu actually met his ancestor in uh, San Francisco. Because he mentioned when they first approached, you know, San Francisco, I was born there. So that implies that his family has been there at least for some time. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they run into his ancestor, and he's a little boy, but they just couldn't get the, the little boy to, to act for the for the camera. And they ended up having to uh, to scrap the bit. Yeah, it was too bad. I think he was meeting his great-grandfather or something. And it's, yeah, it was like great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, something, something like that. Something like that, yeah. And it, that was a shame, because uh, they, they did make a valiant attempt, I think, at that point. Yeah. Uh, and that would have been uh, just a lovely scene to have if we, they could have filmed it yeah yeah I, I i felt bad reading that afterwards i guess during the movie i didn't i didn't really think about it much but you know back then when that was the only star trek uh the the rest of the cast and you know the 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 ones below the line as william shatner used to say all the time um you know we, we all we all love those guys uh even though mm-hmm. they had very tiny parts or or whatnot and and didn't play a lot of critical roles we we love those guys and we we were kind of rooting for them uh, to have uh, more more parts because we'd been going to conventions at that point for a long time, and you could hear them kind of making their plea uh, to the audience mm-hmm. for, for people to write in, to support them. So they were always out there intermingling for the fans or with the fans, and we were always rooting for them to do well. And, uh, you know, in Star Trek II, obviously, there was a, a big part for Chekhov, and and there was supposed to be a big part in Star Trek Two where where Sulu gets command of the the Excelsior. At least he's told he gets command of it, and that was cut. So George missed out on that. In Star Trek Three, they gave uh, Takei a nice scene breaking uh, bones out of the uh, out of the funny farm, and Ahura had a nice little scene herself, but really not much of one. And then in this show, in this movie, excuse me, you know you had the um, the the nice work with with Chekhov and Uhura trying to get the uh, uh, the high energy photons from from the nuclear uh, reactors. You had uh, McCoy and you had Scotty doing their thing, and you had hilarious intertakes uh, between Kirk and and Spock. Uh, they they really stole the show. And then there was poor George out there, kind of in left field again. And you know the mm-hmm. the thing is that they did try, and um, you know he he gets his big. Um, his big plus up, I guess, in in Star Trek Six. So um, when we when we talk about this movie, what was interesting, I think, Jeff, is you know you had 
Jack Sowards did the writing or put a lot of the plot points together for, for The Wrath of Khan. And then Nicholas Miter rewrote that script, um, put it in a certain order, uh, which they tweaked a little bit, uh, him and Harv Bennett. But essentially, Nick Meyer rewrote, took those concepts, rewrote the script. Star Trek III, 100% written by Harv Bennett, uh, stem to stern. And then in Star Trek IV, it got a little bit more interesting. You want to talk about how, how these two writers came together? Yeah, and this one, uh, Harv Bennett and Nick uh, Nicholas Meyer, they uh, came together and they split up the movie. Uh, you have Acts One and Four, uh, which were basically the uh, the scenes set in the future, uh, were written by Harv Bennett, and then Nicholas Meyer wrote Acts Two and Three, which were basically the the parts in the eighties, and it worked really well with the two of them splitting up their writing duties like that. Yeah, the, the, the chemistry worked. You you really couldn't tell a difference in the style, actually. It got a little bit yeah. funnier. But I think one of the interesting things is, too, is that Nicholas Meyer in, in 1980 put out a movie called Time After Time. Mm-hmm. And that also took place in San Francisco. And it was people from the past coming to the future uh, with um, Malcolm McDonald. And uh, who was the, um, oh my goodness. So he played uh, Gorkhan and he played mm-hmm. uh, St. John Talbot. I can't remember his name right now. It's escaping me. But at any rate, Star Trek, both of them wound up becoming parts of Star Trek and Generations. And, and like I just said, uh, with, with those two movies. So I know I'll get it on the Babel Conference. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. That's <laughs> awful. That's blasphemy. But at any rate, so Meyer had some some prior dealings with San Francisco with a similar element. Like I said, only he flipped it. He made the cat, they made them out of water because it was the future versus the past. Uh, and it really worked out well. So I think they, they found the perfect writing partner in making that, that happen. I want to say the guy's first name is David. No, I can't remember his last name. <laughs> Isn't that awful? I hate that. I hate getting old, Jeff. It's take your time getting here. Okay. So you're right. I thought that I thought the writing chemistry. And you're right. It, his first name is David. I was just waiting to see if you could get it. What is it? Come on, don't torture me. <laughs> it's David Warner. David Warner. Ah, oh. <laughs> you could have bailed me out a minute and a half ago, there, buddy. <laughs> you're supposed to be the Trexpert. Anyway, I so David to see if Warner, you could Malcolm get it. McDonald, uh, McDonald, yeah, McDowell. Excuse me. Both um, made their their their. Their, their thumbprint put their thumbprints on Star Trek. Hopefully, uh, David Warner is known much more for Gorkhan than he was for St. John Talbot in Star Trek V. So, anyway, so yeah, the, the writing was, was crisp, it was funny, it was, it was very well done. Now, one of the things too that they wrote in was some pretty cool uh, new characters that I thought uh, were very strong. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, Dr. Jillian Taylor and Catherine Hicks and the Klingon ambassador played by John Shuck. Well, I'll start with the Klingon ambassador. I loved his character and I loved him even more in Star Trek six. Did you? Um, he, yeah. yeah, he, he didn't get as much screen time, mm-hmm. but what he did get, he was just really good in those shot in those scenes. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Uh, he, he just, chews up the scenery uh, in all of the scenes that he's in in both movies and I love seeing him back in 6 uh, it was a nice uh, touch for uh, continuity as well yeah now do you know was, was there any talk about bringing Shuck back for Star Trek 5 um not that I know no. of okay I guess it, I agree with you he wasn't in it long but when he was he uh, he knocked it out of the park and 
had that great combination Klingon diplomat prosecutor type thing and uh, he, he definitely left his stamp I thought uh, secure in Star Trek 4 and he was really good on Enterprise he was I do remember that episode yes yes episodes uh, excuse me yeah two-parter two-parter right could be uh, the uh, ancestor of uh, the later ambassador Oh, did they tie that together? I didn't remember that piece. No, um, they never actually said, but, I mean, you could easily make that argument. Oh, okay. All right, so in, in, is, is that in Trekopedia as official or? <laughs> no, no, but, uh, I mean, I don't see why it couldn't be. Who, who knows, maybe it's one of the novels and I haven't read that one yet. <laughs> yeah, it could be. I, 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 I do like it when they bring back characters, and, and, and they did that a lot in, in Generations as well. You know, they, they, they pulled back... Uh, um, the Klingon Chancellor, or, or the, I'm sorry, the General um, from Star Trek V, and he became the, the Klingon Chancellor, and of course a mm-hmm. lot of um, Robin Curtis, many people uh, wound up in, in generations in different roles, of course. And it was nice to see John Shuck in Enterprise. I thought that was more than appropriate. Yeah, and Jillian uh, Taylor was a really good character, too. I mean, really strong character, knew her stuff, and didn't take anything from anyone. And when Kirk was trying to make his moves, she wasn't really having any of it. No, she wasn't. Which was, an, <laughs> which was a nice twist on the uh, the old trope. Yeah, I, there was something about uh, Catherine Hicks, and she was um, she was kind of, a kind of a good mix, right? She was a professional, mm-hmm. a scientist, a doctor. Um, she she was very grounded, but also very very emotional. Uh, was very very attached to to the whales and very believable you know what i mean mm-hmm. she just she came off as very legitimate and i thought too like they they the way they they kind of wrote her character with the old pickup truck um i don't know there was something there i also remember reading that um when the whales were were released and they didn't tell her that when when she slapped uh, the curator of the cetacean institute um, she slapped him good, and he was mm-hmm. not prepared for it. <laughs> yeah. So she really got into that role as if somebody just took you know a, a loved one, a dear loved one, away from you, and and just gave him a good whack. So uh, pay close attention to that scene when you when you watch that. You know you'll see his reaction is um, like, oh my god, Genuine. we just <laughs> I really took it. And you know, a lot of those types of scenes too in Hollywood, you can kind of see the 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 head moves with it and it's not really touching, but um no, that time I I am not sure if they added the slapping sound effect or if they were able to catch the noise it made when she gave him a good whack. <laughs> but uh the, the thing I like too is 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 like you said, you know, Kirk doesn't get the girl. Uh this is more of a a, a relationship where they can help each other, where the whales mm-hmm. can be saved from hunting, uh, and she has the codes to get them there. Uh, she wants to be with them uh, to to uh, to watch them grow and, and and you know provide that science. And we also learn that one of the whales is pregnant because of Spock's mind meld. And and I thought the way that she, in I guess insists on going and and hugs Kirk just before they they get beamed on board and. And, uh, and and helps, uh, I guess, rescue the whales and, and do everything that needs to be done. But that end scene, that very end scene where Kirk is 
all suave and you know what does he say uh you know in your timeline i don't even have your phone number and she's just like well we'll, we'll catch you around the galaxy <laughs> or something along those lines or yeah. i'll call you that type of thing and the mm-hmm. look on his face when she just walks away i thought that was a, that was a real nice touch because again it brings a lot of humility to these characters. The whole movie did. And and it looks like they had a great time making it. Yeah, and I it actually uh, there's a story in one of the Strange New Worlds anthologies. The title of it is perfect for her character, and she's one of the the main characters in the story. Okay. Um and it's called The Hero of My Own Story. All right. And she absolutely is the hero of her own story in this film. Yeah, yeah, she is. Because really, they can't, uh, the the success of this mission mm-hmm. cannot happen without her. Um, they can't get the whales without her help. No, that's that, that's true. I mean, she, she pulls it all together and... And like I said, they they, they, they wrote it perfectly. They, they really mm-hmm. did, I thought, on, on all fronts. And even the effects that they put together for this movie was, was really well done. The whales, ah, the tail and all that stuff, okay. But the rest of it, you know, um, when they're out to sea and so forth, there's a couple of live shots that are put in there. But the animatronic whales, which I've seen at a convention or two, and, um, and their motion underwater, just beautiful. Looked very, very mm-hmm. authentic. And uh, to the point where I thought they had just filmed live whales in extraordinarily clear water. But that, that wasn't the case. Yeah, they they did a nice job with those two. Okay. Um, another part, too, I wanted to talk about because I thought it was interesting. Now, uh, a few weeks back, I, I had the, the the pleasure of joining uh, Brandon Shea-Motella on uh, Melodic Treks, episode number 39, where uh, he did an episode called There Be Whales Here, where we discussed, he and I, the um, the music for Star Trek Four, which was also very different. What what mm-hmm. were your thoughts of this the the theme that was that was put together by Leonard Rosamond? Um I didn't know what to make of it at first to be honest. Uh it was nothing like that they had had in any of the other Star Trek films. Um I mean it was an orchestral piece just like the others but you know the the themes of the music, the the tempo, the just the feel of it it was it felt different. Uh, and it was uh, it wasn't what I was used to. It wasn't uh, uh, what I was comfortable with when I first heard it. Really, but it it fits the movie perfectly. Mm-hmm. So did I mean, it's, did you get the soundtrack for it? Um, I think I have that one. I have just about every Star Trek soundtrack, but I probably do have it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I thought the. Um... The music was was much more cheerful, uh, almost chirpy mm-hmm. would be a way to put it, I guess. Yeah, it, it, festive. I think that would that would be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would be a good. It word was for very it. festive, and and it did have kind of if, if you you know the 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 opening sequence had a um, kind of a, a I wouldn't say a rumpty tum, but it, it did have a beat like a, a science fiction movie. But then it had you know more clarinets more flutes more things that to lighten it up so it it had a theme it definitely had a sci-fi theme in the beginning and then the way he wrote it um like i said it just it just it was it was a happy festive soundtrack 
that that was very very different, and it was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Score. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that 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 says a lot. I too. mean, it, it's it's an it's very well met, done. It's just not what I was expecting when I went to see the movie, and that's what kind of turned me off of it at first. But I, I did come to like it a lot later. Yeah, and because I, yeah, I I realized that it's it's perfectly in tune with what the movie was, and that's exactly what a soundtrack needs to be. No, that you're 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 spot on, Jeff. It, it, he really did just um, knock it out, and uh, in in really in kind of doing the dive in, and, and I and I encourage people to listen to that episode. Uh, his his history is really fascinating, and, and he and Leonard Nimoy, I guess, were pretty good friends, and that that's how he got the gig. But like you, when the music started and it and it wasn't familiar, I was like, uh oh. And when it was a name I didn't recognize, even back then, it's funny. You just go, oh boy, you know, is this is this gonna work? And uh, and and it, and it did. It, it you know there there are tracks that have very uh, solid uh, beginning and ends with kind of uh, great music in the middle, and and you can listen to you know a two or three minute track like uh, the escape from the hospital was phenomenal, and it just you know had a had a had a had a great theme to it, and it was also the only Star Trek movie that I remember too. Where at the end, when they're running the credits, they're showing pictures and actual um, clips from the movie mm-hmm. you just saw with the music going full bore, and it it just kind of encapsulated that whole movie again. A, a very a very different approach from uh, what we've seen before in other Star Trek movies. Yeah, that that is something that uh, they hadn't really done before. Or since, really? No, 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 not, not like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, the closest that they've come was uh, the uh, um, 2009 and Into Darkness, where they had kind of like the sci-fi space scene out uh, flying through space. But even that, it's not you know what we're uh, just watching in the film. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, all the all the different planetary shots and galactic shots mm-hmm. and things. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. With with the actual Star Trek theme from the TV show blaring away. So yeah, that that was that was pretty cool. All right. So um, those are the main points I wanted to hit, but I wanted to get onto some final thoughts. Now there were some firsts in this film, Jeff. Do you wanna you wanna hit on some of those? Um, yeah. One of them was uh, we saw the first female uh, Starfleet captain in this movie. Uh, she was played by uh, Mad Sinclair, who's the captain of the uh, the Saratoga. Right, right. And do you remember her yeah, name and, too? What the captain's yeah. name was? Um, they never gave a name for the captain. Oh. Uh, but the uh, the actress who played her was uh, Madge Sinclair. Yeah, I, I do remember that. And that was it wasn't a big role, obviously, but it was a mm-hmm. a landmark, right? And uh, a, a a definitely a Star Trek first. And this was 1986, so. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's funny growing up in that era, and I listen to a lot of the shows, and I, I read a lot of the Babel Conference. Uh, when they talk about those timelines, you know, I know they they quite legitimately have some some interesting things to say about Star Trek in the '60s and, and its portrayal of women. But um, you know, we've talked about how some of those shows were pretty iconic and forward looking, and in 1986, it, it wasn't a crazy thing. To uh, to think of a woman as a captain, which you know, considering all the um, the hoopla over Voyager, which which was a big deal because it was a lead character, the star of the show being female, that was that was a big change. 
But, uh, you know, in 1986, I had already been in the Navy two years. My very first commanding officer of the um, basic training uh, that I went to uh, was female captain. And I'll never forget her name because I thought it was ironic that I was going to boot camp and the CEO's name was Captain Nice. <laughs> that just seemed to be a cruel joke. Although she seemed very pleasant. I only saw her when we graduated. So. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so that that was pretty cool. And if I'm right about this, then the the person that was uh, Major um, Barrett was back. She hadn't been yes. back. Uh, she wasn't in, in two or three, but she was in this movie. And you could see her in the command center. And I thought I had read that she was responsible or in charge of Starfleet Medical. And was I right on that, or was there some other part? Um, well, it was pretty obvious that she was playing Chapel, and she was playing, you know, she had the medical uniform on. Yep. But I don't know if they were saying, you know, it was. I don't think it was ever actually said that she was in charge of Starfleet Medical, but clearly she was working at Starfleet Medical or at Starfleet Headquarters in some sort of capacity like maybe a liaison or something mm -hmm. yeah i i was i was trying to kind of flush that out a little bit uh good thing to bring up in in the babel conference i know there's people out there that know this stuff cold um because they're told every time i, I you know I, I get something wrong or whatever and ask for clarification i always get it and it's not a, yep. a one-up you type deal for me it's all clarification and if somebody knows let me know you know that type of thing so okay um what 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 were kind of your 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 final thoughts on Star Trek for the voyage home there, Jeff? Well, one thing I thought was kind of odd was uh, you know they've got all this information about uh, humpback whales and all this stuff on the bird of prey, mm -hmm. but they can't figure out this information on Earth. Yeah, it was a little bit <laughs> you, of a mistake. You, you, yeah, you, you would think that Earth would have figured it out long before Kirk and crew did. Mm-hmm. I agree. That was that was in, especially uh, Spock, who's still trying to put things together, right? Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's it still works for the story. I mean, maybe they figured it out on Earth and just didn't tell anybody because they didn't think that there's anything can be done because the whales have been extinct for a couple of hundred years. Mm -hmm. And then Kirk is just like, "Well, we know how to time travel. Let's just do that." <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's that, that's that's a good point, and you can always kind of pull those out of the movies too. I mean, I it it does get me a little crazy from, and this was just me, especially when I was a younger kid, from the technical aspects of things. So, in Star Trek the Motion Picture, when they come out of dry dock, they're essentially just using thrusters, right, getting a slow mm -hmm. amount of speed, and then when they go into impulse power, that ship is humming. I mean, it's moving. Mm -hmm. It's it, they're going at whatever they said warp point five, and that thing was was zooming through the um, the solar system, and then you know you get to Star Trek three, and you know it's it's one quarter impulse to exit the um, the space dock, and the thing's barely creeping along, and it's slow. <laughs> they have no consistency, and then in this mm -hmm. movie they're in the atmosphere. And they're blasting into warp, right? And if you go into warp speed and you're only going to the sun, you're there in probably less than a half a second, I'm guessing, when you consider warp speed, right? Uh, warp one would be the speed of light. I mean, and we're eight and a half minutes away from the sun. 
Right, and, and they were and, doing warp seven, warp eight, warp nine. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, they should have blown past the sun and been halfway to Vulcan. Yeah, no, absolutely, that's what I meant. It's, I mean, either that or they're just doing loops around like Superman. Could have been, could have been, but it was yeah. it, those. Those are things, like I said, those those inconsistencies that I always kind of, uh, you know, hey, listen, for anybody just watching the the film, they don't care. It's it's just fun. The mm-hmm. ship's moving fast. I get it. But there was one thing that I thought was very very interesting about this movie usually when they're going back in time right they're going back to fix something Mm -hmm. to correct a wrong uh you know because somebody screwed up the timeline this was the first time and and i don't know if it's the only time where they went back in time to change and alter the future so on purpose they were literally going there on purpose to bring back whales that were killed in the latter part of the 20th century um, and they brought them to the 23rd century to to restore, obviously, uh, and get rid of that shuttle, I mean that probe, and to fix things. But I don't remember anything ever happening because essentially you would think that would be against all kinds of uh, temporal laws and rules, in theory. Yeah, I mean, they kind of get around that in the movie, at least with the whales, because they were about to get killed by uh, the the whalers, so one it didn't really matter about the whales. Because either way, they were going to die or disappear from the timeline, which is basically the same effect on history. But Jillian disappearing from history is a totally other question. Because I mean, what was she going to do afterward in the timeline that she now can no longer do because she's not in history? Well, there's there's that piece where, you know, obviously she's the only person that's an expert on whales in the 23rd century because there aren't any, or there aren't any humpback, humpback whales as far as we know. Yeah, I'm, well, my point is that, uh, you know, in the original timeline, yeah. you know, before she got removed from history uh, because, you know, uh, you know, she's, 1986 happens and then, in the, you know, originally she continues to live on after the whales have been taken away. You know all the things that she would have done, uh, would have done in the timeline beyond the point where Kirk and crew went back to now can no longer happen with her. So you know it's got to have some kind of an impact on history. Well, I, you're right about that. You're absolutely right. But and and that's uh, you know something else. You know they uh, bring up with the uh, time travel episodes, like with the you know deep space 9 where they're complaining about kirk with the 14 separate violations of uh, the temporal prime directive this would be one of them oh yeah absolutely but i guess the interesting piece to me is they went back in time to fix a wrong but they're rescuing earth but earth did it to themselves right the people of earth were mm-hmm. short-sighted they killed the whales this thing comes looking for the whales and it just devastates the earth so Here's my theoretical question, Mr. Atos. So the the Enterprise crew, they've got their, whether they're on the old Enterprise or the, or the A, it doesn't matter. They fly to a planet that's being decimated by a probe. The people on the planet signal the Enterprise that the only way that they can save them is to go back in time into their own history, fix a wrong that was done, and bring them into the future, would they do it? I don't know. I don't think they would. That's what I'm saying. There's a double standard, I think, when it comes mm-hmm. to, to yeah. Earth. And that's that's where I was going, that that's, that's the interesting yeah. premise of this show to me, is that mm-hmm. 
you know, for all the right reasons, I think we could sit back and make a good justification for doing it. But should they have? That's another question. And, you know, obviously, they, they, they changed history. Uh, yeah, they and Kirk is breaking from that all point, of Earth the rules in these movies. Yeah, Kirk is breaking all the rules in these movies. You know, stealing the Enterprise, going back in time. Yep, yep, he is. And, uh, you know, it, it, was, it was an interesting direction to, to take the cast and to take Kirk and to, to do these things with. Like I said, for all the right reasons, they created some mm-hmm. brilliant storylines. Uh, and, and I know that's, you know, we, we kind of got used to the renegade Captain Kirk, which is why I kind of struggled a little bit with 2009 because he pretty much throughout the original series, other than a mock time, and that was righted too. He really did follow the rules. You know, he, he, mm-hmm. he did what he was supposed to do. He was not uh, rogue by any means, but he had a little bit more, I guess, freedom to make decisions, especially when you're out on a five-year mission far, far away. It might have been a little bit more aggressive. But anyway, that to me was uh, that, that, that historical piece of it, of going back to, to correct a, a wrong on Earth, where I, I don't think by their own philo- philosophical and prime directive rules and regulations would have ever done it for another planet. Yeah. And this could also be the reason why we have a temporal prime directive in later Star Trek. It could be. <laughs> It could be. It would be interesting to to kind of tie those together. Maybe that's an, another line you can draw uh, on your website there uh, to see if that if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. what's to stop any planet from doing just that to change history mm-hmm. for any reason? Where you really don't want to, right? I, that would that would be my thought process there. Okay. Anything else on the show, Jeff? Anything else on the movie? I'm sorry. I think we've covered just about everything that I can think of at this point. I think so too. I mean, yeah, I mean, we've really talked about the uh, the time travel a lot, um, especially since you know, like we were saying, every other time we've seen the time travel, they've either been correcting someone else going back and changing history, or just going back and observing history. This is the only time we've actually seen them actively going back to change something themselves. That's right. That's right. That's that's what makes it unique. Okay. All right. Well. With that, so it's it's been it's been a, a great time discussing Star Trek for the vo- the voyage home here on Standard Orbit. But uh, this isn't the only topic we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek FM, the Ready Room. Fifty years, there's been something to carry it this far. In that yeah. vein of hey, it's our it's our generation or our eras mythic heroes that we can look up to do we dare put that in something that's lasted as long as you know literary wise Shakespeare and some of the other myths of of, you know the ancients that have found a purpose and a use that still speak to people the orb the wonderful thing about Zial is she just has it in spades you know I mean she's been mistreated her entire life by her parents and yet has turned out to be this beautiful amazing person part of that's probably Kira taking care of her for so long now yeah women at warp Admiral Alan Alda came to visit Captain Coretta Scott King. (laughs) Meanwhile, morale officer Beyonce is uh, trying to deal with her new Weasley sweater. And (laughs) 
They're all partying at the first contact party. Melodic Treks. This score is one of my favorites for Star Trek The Next Generation and is similar in many ways to a film score that I love. The episode is Data Lore, and the film score that I will compare this to is Alien by Jerry Goldsmith. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So, Jeff, Mr. Ataz, please let all our listeners know how they can access all avenues to Trek FM. Well, you can find us on iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 file from our website at Trek.fm, and you can grab the RSS link there as well. And if you're an Apple user, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. That makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes, and it helps us to increase our visibility for new listeners. Thank you, Jeff. And then, you know, another big piece of of what makes this show so successful is that we're allowed to bring you uninterrupted podcasting, no ads, no commercials, due to uh, the use of Patreon and to our patrons who donate money to this network. So what is Patreon? So Patreon is the system that that Trek FM employs for, for listeners to donate money uh, to, to keep this to keep this show running to help us buy equipment uh, in order to bring really good podcast shows to you and, and I'll tell you they reinvest that money folks uh, they they have so many shows on the network I, I saw a new one just launched mm-hmm. so I, I think it's up to almost 21 different shows uh, on this and network. we're trying to bring back some of the old ones that aren't showing right now too yeah it's it's amazing what they're doing so uh, in, in appreciation for your donations, we do have certain perks for certain levels. So if if you can donate $15 a month, uh, then you get a seat on the Patrons Roundtable. And what's really neat about that is that you can get your shot at, at podcasting, talking to a bunch of the hosts, and, and, and really seeing how it's done. And it's, it's such a, a great format. It's where I met Jeff. It's where I met Norm uh, on the first roundtable uh, back in... You know what? It was last June. It was a year ago this month. As mm-hmm. I remember being in a hotel room in San Diego and, and, and uh, getting online with just my headphones uh, using Zoom. And there we were. So, yeah, a year ago. So that, that's impressive. And for, for $25 a month, uh, you can have associate producer credit for whatever show you like. And, you know, the only thing we ask is if, if you can contribute to contribute. And the other piece of it that's really cool is that you're not locked in. So if one month you can afford a little bit more than another, that's fine. If you run into some rough times and need to pull it back, you can pull it back. It's very, very flexible. And any contribution that you can make means so much. And I have to say that, that Jeff, Norm, and I, we're all very large contributors to Patreon. We do practice what we preach. So please log on to patreon.com. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Trek F-M. Any contribution you can make is greatly appreciated. So along those lines, we want to thank always the associate producers for Standard Orbit, Renee Roberts and Richard Rutledge. Believe the, these guys and ladies, they, they've been here since the beginning. We want to thank you so much for all your support for both Standard Orbit and the Trek FM. I mean, we just love what you do for us. It's, it's incredible. You can find Renee on Twitter at MRES underscore 1701 and Richard at RUT8972, both on Twitter. So thanks again. And one other thing, too, that, that you can help, one thing that you can do to help us support 
Trek FM is if you want to wear any of the Trek.FM fandom, you can find great Trek FM theme merchandise at Redbubble. Just type in Trek FM into the search field, and there's all kinds of great shirts and designs that Aaron Harvey has put together for us. Uh, I've got a couple now, and uh, I'm looking to to increase my, my wardrobe there, and uh, that, that'll definitely be a, a big piece. And also, if you're able to stump Mr. Ataz... I will buy you the Trek FM shirt of your choice from redbubble.com, so please keep your questions coming. To contact us, if you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trek.fm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm, and you can leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm, and the best way to communicate with me and the rest of us is through the Babel Conference. So the Babel Conference, spelled B-A-B-E-L, into the search field into Facebook. And it is it is a closed group, but um, you just put a request in there. The admins will let you in. And we have some great conversation in there. Everybody is on their best behavior. It is not your typical Facebook page, folks. Trust me. Uh, that's where you can go in and IM me and send questions in that I can uh, used to try to stump Mr. Ataz. And if you're successful, like I said, I'll buy you a shirt from Redbubble. So that, that's, that's how it works for me. Jeff, what is your contact information? Well, if you don't have access to an Atavacron or even a stolen bird of prey that you can loop around the sun, <laughs> you can always find me on the Babel Conference on Facebook. I'm the co-host on the network for both Standard Orbit and for Warp 5, Trek FM's dedicated Enterprise show. I'm also on Twitter at Harlander, and I'm a supporter of the network through Patreon. You can check out my website. It's been called The Grand Unified Theory of Star Trek at trekopedia.com and my independent comic books at bandwidthcomics.com or search on Facebook for Bandwidth Comics. Yeah, so just to to follow up with Norm's information, if you'd like to get in touch with Norm, you can always find him here on the network or on the Babel Conference. You can find Norm on Twitter at Starfighter1701. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>